big sky, big potential. In association with Mills and Reeve, this is Eastern Promise. Achieving more together. The Quadrum Institute on the Norwich Research Park is at the forefront of a new frontier in science, where health, food and innovation all meet. It's a healthcare facility and a clinical research institute into both food and gut health that's solving some of the greatest mysteries posed by the link between what we eat and our physical and mental health. Co-location with the John Innes Centre, the Sainsbury Laboratory and Earlham Institute further facilitates the Quadrum Institute's research and the nearby Food Enterprise Park and Food Innovation Cluster make for an exciting ecosystem in the making. Of course, I wanted to know more, and I wasn't the only one. I invited Dr Tammy Dugan, Life Science and Healthcare Partnership Lead for the University of Cambridge, to come and see the QI, and you'll be joining Tammy and the Quadrum Institute's Head of Public Affairs, Andrew Stronach, on her fact-finding tour of the QI very shortly. First, we sat down for a chat with the director of the Quadrum Institute, Professor Ian Charles, OBE. Professor Ian Charles, OBE, for which many congratulations, by the way. Thank you for welcoming myself, Mike Rigby of Eastern Promise, and... Tammy Dugan from Cambridge University to the Quadrum Institute on a very sunny Wednesday morning uh, with beautiful weather. Could you give us a very potted history of Professor Ian Charles, please? Oh, there is a potted history. But as you can see, physically, you can see uh, I'm a scientist of a certain age. So I have been around and um, I started life in, in, um, in science, really. Well, my, my real interest in science started before um, I did a science degree which was at St. Andrews University. I was always interested and drawn to science. And so it, it makes a lot of sense to me that I ended up as a scientist, although perhaps not to other people around me at the time. My first love was tinkering with electronics. And I remember you know, being, being captivated as a young man by, um, by what was the, the emerging field of home electronics in terms of what you could do with transistors and I, you know, working out my own little soldering iron and moving on to actually uh, etching my own little circuit boards that I could plug my transistors into. This is all very good, of course, because I had a, I had a mathematical bent as well. So I was drawn towards that maths, physics side. But then... Um, Strange vault face. I, I remember reading something in in probably the mid nineteen seventies about genetic engineering, which was just starting. Um, the Cohen Boyer patents had been filed around nineteen seventy two, and there was this great idea 
that uh, you could take DNA from one organism and plug and play it in another organism. This was, this was the start of cloning, the discovery of restriction enzymes. And this, this moment, I remember, it strikes you, uh, if you know about biology, that um, the very same genes in bacteria, these lowly organisms, work in the same way that they do to an extent in human beings. Isn't that amazing? So there's this continuity of life that actually extends right across the planet. So, and I, I was amazed by this. So I wanted to go into life sciences. So I ended up doing a degree at St. Andrews. It was biochemistry, zoology um, background. Um, and then on to do a PhD and then onto various postdocs. But I'm unusual in the sense that I've worked in industry um, as well as in academia. So I've had various roles at Welcome, Glaxo Welcome, pharmaceutical companies, um, in, in academic, in, as a professor in teaching roles, um, and a professor in institutes, yeah. but also in, in the context of how we make a societal impact. So I've worked on projects involving whooping cough vaccine, um, other vaccines, and I've also worked on spin-out companies. I've been very successful spinning out ideas, patents I've filed that have spun out into companies that have actually contributed to um, success in terms of deliverables. Yeah. So I, I've, I've led a charm life, but mostly it's to do with great people around me. So I you can't emphasize enough about how this is really about teams and about building teams and working together in a collaborative way to deliver on expectations uh, that society expects now from investment. Yeah, definitely. For those listening to this who might not know of the Quadrum Institute, could you very quickly give us a quick overview of, of what it is you do here? So uh, Quadrum is, is unique, I think, in terms of its, um, uh, of what the expectations are on Quadrum. And I'll, I'll tell you more about the name first before we, we get into some of the detail, because Quadrum, what does that mean? You know, but I'll tell you that Quadrum actually stands for the four partners. So Quad, four, the four partners. And the four partners are BBSRC, which is one of the, an element of UKRI, our, our core funder. Um, the Quadrum Institute Bioscience is the old Institute of Food Research that was here before, uh, and the majority. And you might know that. I, I do remember it. Yeah. Okay. So um, it, it's an important part of that food science, and then of course the hospital, NNUH, and the university, UEA. Thus the four partners. Thus Quadrum. Right. You've no idea what fun we had uh, getting that name in the very early stages when, when the four partners were together. It involved locking us all together in a room for two days and coming up with ideas. Uh, and then we settled on Quadrum. And you might think, well, that's a bit of a camel of a name. You know, it's not yeah. really. But actually, it does signify the four partners and it does signify um, that partnership. And I, I like that. And I like it still today. Um, so there's Quadrum, there's the four partners, but you can see uh, from that the beginnings of this idea in, in 
The ground floor, as you came in, the, the lower basement floor, is one of the largest endoscopy units in Europe with a capacity to do 40,000 uh, endoscopies a year. Now, endoscopies have, have really had a huge impact in the way gut health is perceived because you can pick up early something that might be a, a tiny little adenocarcinoma or a tiny little, um, a, any form of cancer, and you can snip it out quite early. So if you get in early, these checks intervention are very useful and it gives you a great insight. But it also means for us in terms of a research um, organization, we're working with partnership with the hospital, with endoscopy. And that means that we get access to um, all the ethics are done, everything's you know a seamless way of delivering on um, biological samples. So we get this connection with patients immediately that allows us to help and improve what's going on in the gut by looking closely at human tissue itself. I think that's a fantastic opportunity for us. So, so that leads us on to the connections with the university, of course, because they have a school of medicine. It's the medics that work closely with the scientists. It's all the training or all the interactions. We also have a biorepository, of course, oh, where everything is done in terms of the, you know, the, all the legal requirements, the ethical requirements, everything is done so that it can be a seamless transition between uh, clinical, uh, clinical scientists, um, clinicians with scientific interests who want to work in certain areas, our scientists who are looking at that gut health element, and um, bringing that all together in context to deliver those biological samples. We also have a clinical trials unit where we can look at how we can test the impact of what we're doing yeah. on clinical populations. So you'll get to see this when you have a little tour around. And it's beautiful, modern facilities. Now, are we have you know, clear mission, vision statements looking at the impact of food on health through the microbiome. Now, again, if I, if I was a young scientist today, this is an area that I would find hugely, hugely fascinating. Imagine all these microorganisms living in us and around us. They're cooking up a storm of metabolites. They're doing all the cell signaling. They're doing all the bits of interaction with our human gut. And stuff is happening there that is impacting our health. We need to understand exactly what is happening there. We've, we've talked about FMT in the context of this uh, and, and the delivery, fecal microbiota transplant FMT, just for the avoidance of doubt. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, we, we uh, uh, and that's part of what we, we are doing and we would like to do, but it's only a tiny part of what we can and are doing here. This is a really exciting park in, in that there are very clear pathways, almost lines of narrative between the various institutes. And not only that, just two junctions westward on the A47, you've got the food technology cluster emerging. Now, I need to put a, a pound in the in the box because uh, for every time I've used the word virtuous circle, I'm trying to think of an alternative um, that I don't use quite so often, overuse quite so often. But um, how do you see not just the relationship on the park developing, yeah. but that wider uh, between food technologists, food industry um, developing along with what you do here. 
So all elements of this great grand equation need to work together to deliver improved health. There's no point scientists dreaming up some novel way to do stuff if it doesn't have uh, a buy-in from industry, because actually they're going to be the primary producers. So we're not just talking about farmers, but we're talking about the way uh, products are produced into food. Uh, and we need to make sure that we're actually retaining all those elements of food that we need to be healthy and at the same time omitting anything that's dangerous. And I'm talking now about pathogens in the food chain that we want to evolve. And we all know about food poisoning to an extent. Uh, and we all know how we need to mitigate against that being part of, the, uh, part of our equation to understand quality and food. We also think we know and understand about macro and micronutrients. That is what makes up food. I, I can say we don't because there's, um, I'm going to rip off a phrase from physics now and I'm going to say there's this thing called dark matter. Right. You've probably heard the mis dark matter. Physicists use it when they're describing some of those beautiful, you know, photographs of, of, of you see from the Webb telescope or previously the Hubble telescope when you see these areas and these grand equations that describe how the galaxies are moving away from the Big Bang and the missing matter that needs to be there to account for the velocities and the way they're moving. Same in food. There's this dark matter we think we know about food. We say, ah, oh, proteins, carbohydrates, fats, this, that, the other, micronutrients. We don't because there's so much that's missing that we don't understand. So we're really to understand food and its impact on health. We need to do a little bit more digging into what's actually in food and its composition before we can really understand. And you're right, we need to be talking more grandly and broadly about the way we interact across the piece. And by the piece, yes. I mean the whole equation that describes the sector. Now, that's just not about um, food production. It's just not about the companies. It's just not about the science behind it. It's actually also a societal understanding of the psychology of food. Why we eat, why we overeat, why we don't eat enough, why we're attracted perhaps to the wrong foods. There's a societal balance we need to uh, uh, understand here. And again, that's part of the grand thing. It, it, you think juggling a lot of balls up in the air, but actually at some point we need to get this right. You can see the rates of um, lots of food related diseases uh, happening across the Western world. It, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, all of these things linked perhaps in the way that we're eating the wrong food. Yes. Um, and it's interesting you bring up those, the, those issues uh, around sort of the wider food sector because I do love annual reports and accounts, which is a weird thing to say, but you That's always... That's possibly perverse. As I well, know, it's, I it's, it's very bad. I'm trying to keep them up. But one thing you do get is a very good insight, particularly yeah. through strategic reports, uh, into, into an organisation, what their goals are, aims for the future. One of the things that stood out to me in, in, in the one I, I, I read on the Quadrant uh, was how you're looking at... The food that's being, that plant-based food that may be better for the planet, but there is still a question mark, uh, perhaps, I mean, maybe unfair, but there's still a question over 
is that food good for us? And I'm thinking particularly in terms of deficiencies in uh, vitamin B12, which I know something is that's being looked at um, by the Institute. I mean, Andrew here mentioned something about daffodil, I believe. Um, there, and, it, it, it was a cutesy experiment. A cute, well, you see, but from, 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 from small acorns, as they say. What role is the quadrant going to play in, in, in ensuring that? Uh, with industry, that the food that's better for the planet is better for the humans that are consuming it as well? Well, there's a lot of work to be done uh, uh, in this area because I, we need to define what food, what's in food anyway, right. whilst we're understanding what are those elements that make food healthy or not healthy. <clears throat> now, uh, we know about global warming now. And we know we've left it a little bit late to start doing stuff about yes. global warming. Perhaps it's a challenging statement, so I better be, I better moderate what I say. It's never too late. Yeah. And so we need to understand what that impact on global warming will be on the way we produce food. Now we produce food, um, and it's it's quite interesting over the last. Remember what happened with human beings and evolution. <clears throat> so over the last 10 or 12,000 years, we moved from a hunter-gatherer diet to a diet where we were cultivating crops that were better for us to cultivate. And that led the agrarian revolution. So we settled on a few crops, you know, wheat, corn, rye, barley, some of the, the, the grains, the grasses, and a few animal species. And we settled with those. That's a blink of an eye in terms of evolution, yes. but we've settled on those. Those are what there are. They're not necessarily the best or healthiest for us. They're just the foods that we happen to have had over the last 12,000 years or so, and our evolution has been part of that over a very short period. However, you know, Homo sapiens of some form or um, of some form or another have been around for a bit longer than that. And so we've been evolved to eat other things. Now, we need to explore what those other things might be because we still have a repertoire of, of, of uh, other food crops out there. I'm thinking even of things that we're beginning to look more seriously at now, like some of the millets, which don't have a, such a high glycemic hit, which might be contributing to some of the disease um, states that we're seeing. So there's a whole repertoire of foods we need to look at uh, in addition to those new foods like new burgers that don't contain any meat or uh, whatever. So there, there are a range of opportunities for us to really understand what's in food and what impact it will have. Well, I've been reach, uh, reached out to by uh, listen, uh, one listener in particular, but uh, to ask about your work on uh, chronic fatigue syndrome and, and ME. Yeah, well, this is this is quite interesting. I, I, I would say now that um, ME is a really interesting disease, and for a long time, um, it, it's it's been um, misunderstood. And it might be there's not just one ME, but there might be a lots of different etiologies that result in the same symptom. That's a chronic. Um, well, the, the chronic symptoms associated with disease, but they might have different etiologies, i.e. different causative, uh, and we don't know. So it might be that the role of the gut microbiota plays in ME, 
is significant. We need to do the experiment. So after all, we're scientists. So if you challenge me as a scientist in any situation, I'd say, well, we've got to be empirical. We've got to do the experiment to test the hypothesis. That's absolutely fundamentally important. This is what's beaten into you as a young scientist. You know this. <laughs> we, we, we get these... Um, we get these uh, uh, routes to take to actually test hypotheses, and we need statistically significant numbers. We need to do the test that's well uh, well organised with with all the right controls, and then we need to see what the answer is as a consequence. Joe, you know, I find it it's weird, but I find it immensely comforting when you say the words "we don't know." Because there is so, that means there's so much left to be understood, so much left to discover, rather than well, we think we, we know pretty much everything, so we're you know. Well, I, I think one of the weaknesses you find in scientists is is our our brutal honesty, <laughs> and that means we always fail. We often fail in discussions with politicians who are black and white and they can say things. Uh, when I reflect. On statements I make, as we always do, you think, well, do we actually know that? Do we really understand what's going on? And you have to, scientists tend to be brutally honest with themselves and say, actually, until we do the experiment, until we test it, then actually we don't know. It remains a hypothesis yeah. and it remains to be tested. The more evidence we get that supports a hypothesis, great. And the more evidence we get from different routes, different experimental designs, we can move forward with certainty that that hypothesis is remaining testable and it's remaining intact. What you really want to do is find a killer experiment that really challenges that experimental situation. <laughs> so you can reflect on it and say, well, that's not quite what we expected. Um, but until then, you know, you're, you're testing hypothesis. Gravity, you know. Or theory of evolution, that's a hypothesis, but there's lots and lots of evidence on the way. Yes. I, having had, I mean, you wouldn't know the, necessarily know this, but having had some decade or more experience working with very closely with politicians, I absolutely understand where you're coming from um, and, and seeing them sort of quiz quiz uh, yep. scientists it's it's um it's if you're allowed to finish the sentence um that that, that, that that's quite a, a meeting of worlds well i think it's just a, 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 a often you find that politicians um, uh, have some sort of legal or legalistic or background or they may even have trained as barristers and that's a completely different approach in terms of understanding and deriving truth yeah because it might it might have some different meaning Yes, well, not always, but often it's it's uh, to uh, encourage you to give the answer they first thought of. So, um, but I, I, I would never dream of saying that. I know. So I, I, I feel like I've uh, I, I'm, I don't want to say earned the right, but uh, I feel like I've uh, got enough experience to say that. But uh, speaking of parliament, things parliamentary, I have a very strong recollection in the aftermath of the pandemic when Dr. Jenny Harris. Um, who was then, at that time, Deputy Chief Medical Officer, was uh, addressing a Commons Committee and was talking about the and, and mentioned in with fulsome praise the work that had been done in the yeah. east of England mapping um, COVID. To what extent is work on COVID still happening at this institute on this park? And, and to what extent has other work spun out of that work? Well, well, you, we talk about COVID um, in terms of that 
response to the pandemic, but actually our ability to respond to um, the pandemic. You're talking now about the genome sequencing we did that allowed the uh, understanding of what those genomes, I'm going to use some words now that I, I might need to explain, but what, what we did was we derived the sequences, the DNA sequence of an organism. Now you might say, so what? Uh, but that allows us to actually understand um, by looking at the differences between the different strains of COVID that were circulating at the time, what strain came from where? And we were able to map that as a consequence of our genome sequence information and be able to understand its spread through um, different communities. Now, that's very powerful because it gives you an idea about transmission of disease. So it's very wonderful. But the fact that we were able to do that for COVID was actually on the back of all our other genome sequencing right. work in other organisms, um, which we were doing already. Now, I remember, um, I, I remember reading in, it was at the back end of 2019 when um, COVID, there was reports of this mysterious disease in China. And I remember coming into the Institute in January and saying to, to uh, my uh, executive team, this is something we're going to need to keep an eye on. This looks like it's pretty hot. We might need as an institute to pivot ourselves from what we're doing to some form of pandemic response. Gosh, how, how wise those words <laughs> turned out to be. Um, and I wish I'd been a gambling man on that, actually. <laughs> but, but, but seriously, institutes like this are a great place to be able to do that work because we have core expertise we have people who are dedicated to their work they love their work and they were they were able to pivot then to be able to change from what they were doing with the genome sequencing which was with microorganisms onto another microorganism which happened to be yeah. covid so we were able to pivot quite quickly and this is what government this is what ukri this is what bbsrc wants us to do as an institute we should be flex we should have this capacity to be able to work in this sort of area and to be able to pivot quickly when necessary so i'm i'm enormously proud of the team that did this work so covid as was taught a lot of lessons for society we were able to respond rapidly and it was great we were able to fit alongside this cog uk that was set up Fantastic partnership with we Cambridge, with the Sanger, and the yeah, yeah. we're all uh, all working together on a on a common goal. But actually, it the work we were doing at the time, and same also for uh, Sanger and Cambridge, is work that's ongoing in other directions, and it's part of what might be called preparedness, but it's general part of the philosophy of the science we do anyway that does make us prepared. So, um, I, I think. Nothing happens by accident, really. I think we, we, we were prepared in a sense because um, the science and technology we're using for one area was relevant and appropriate for another. So you had that ability to just we flex ability. In, a, in, a, yeah. in a really short, yeah. short frame of time. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, the QI has been selected, as you know, for the Department for International Trade's High Potential Opportunities Program. And that's, that, that's, that's huge. That's fantastic. And a huge success for the QI. How is that going to take shape going forward? And how is that? Has it? Do you hope it will translate into investment? 
Well, of course, I hope we translate into yeah, investment. Yes, let's, well, yes, let's deal with the tricky one first. Yes. yes. So, do you know, though, I think there's so much potential on, uh, for, for QI, uh, but for the whole Norwich research park. And I, I'd rather frame the answer in context. So, one of, the, one of the things we do well on the Norwich research park is have this broad understanding of of the science area. And I do love the fact that John Innes, I don't know if you've talked to Graham or are you intending that's, to talk? That's, that's in train, as they okay. say. Okay, well then you, you, you'll probably hear the same sort of story about the connected uh, nature of the work. But John Innes, of course, have a fantastic world-class reputation in this crop um, and science uh, area. Absolutely fantastic. But the crops they make, the food they make as a consequence of growing, say wheat, example, we need to understand what happens when we process that and when we turn it into food. And when we turn that food in our beautiful clinical trials kitchen, where they make some absolutely fantastic buns that can be used for the <laughs> clinical trials. Um, but we need to understand what that's doing, say, to glycemic index or say to it, its effective passage through your um, yeah, intestinal tract its effect on microbiota. So there's a whole series of questions linking the institutes. And again, at Earlham, they've got fantastic informaticists. We need to process a lot of that data, the electronic data, the bioinformatic data, what those genome sequences mean. So the whole way that we interact with the hospital, the university, the institutes, actually puts us in a very strong position, I think, to leverage any government initiatives. Yeah. And I, I, I love the context of that. And I think that's something that we need to be doing if we're genuinely to be performing on the world stage. Now, one of the things that fascinates me about coming to any scientific uh, institution, and this was particularly true of the Sainsbury Laboratory, is that the way that discoveries are marked now, uh, one of the things that came out of, I interviewed Nick Talbot at Sainsbury Laboratory, and he told me about their break room, which is the coffee rooms, the ceiling of that is covered in dents, which are a result of champagne corks being popped to mark a discovery. Each dent is signed. Quite what's going to happen to that ceiling when the, the new yeah. building is being built, I don't know. I hope they retain it in some form because it's a fantastic, um, uh, almost time capsule of, of, of discovery. How do discoveries get marked at the QI? And do people still sort of batter down your door and say, you've got to come and see this? Oh, yeah, that happens. But um, the, the, unfortunately, the director of Quadrum at the minute is teetotal. And he doesn't right. let... Uh... <laughs> I, mean, I, I only know they pop the champagne cork. I don't know what happens to the champagne afterwards. Yeah, OK, I make no comment. Yeah, no, it's because we're um, uh, uh, in, a, in a hospital environment. There's, there's no alcohol on site. And that includes, unfortunately, champagne. But we do know places we can go to celebrate. <laughs> yes, where we can repair to it. Yeah, it's quite interesting. When I, I did the same question at BT at Industrial Park and whether they had like sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark style warehouses of technology for which the time was not yet right. And they went, oh yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, can I see them? Oh no. Oh, okay. Mm, drat. But uh, that's, that's, that, 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 that's really fascinating. So when was the last time, do you think, so can I ask when the last time somebody sort of grabbed you and went, You've got to come and look at this. Oh, I, I think um, it's, it's probably one of my... Uh, uh, so um, 
I've got my own group here yes, working yes. on on some aspects of how we link uh, genotype to phenotype. Now, all that is a, a fancy way of saying how how organisms behave with respect to the the genes. So it's a way to link the two. Um, pieces of information. And I remember um, one of my postdocs telling me of some absolutely stunning result he'd seen as a consequence of exposure of uh, um, uh, microorganisms to an antibiotic. I remember thinking, wow, look at that. I've never seen that before. So it's one of those wow moments. And those make good publications generally. You mentioned technology earlier, and I know that your colleague here, Dr. Dipali Singh, is part of the AI, has been selected for the management um, team of the AI in Bioscience Network. Yeah. So, and one of the points she makes in the, her blog post, it's quite in, on the QI website, it's quite interesting in the fact that a lot of AI is used, we just don't call it that yet, or, or we, we've used it for ages, we just haven't called it AI. Um, uh, so how can you see... Um, the develop the development of those interactions between the, the use of AI growing, I should say, in what you do, and uh, the increased uh, interactions between the mathematic disciplines, yeah. the scientific disciplines, and the clinical disciplines. So this it this is the next stage of uh, evolution of science, and I, I think we're, we're encountering it probably a little bit behind the physicists who were aware of AI because they were having to manipulate vaster numbers. It's only now where, where we've got vast amounts of information and it's either the genomic information, the genetic information, or it's the uh, image information when we're doing high resolution imaging of, of, of uh, microbial host cell interact, that, that sort of behavior. They require a lot of information, a lot of data processing, and it's, it's, it's where those science of physics, maths, biology all intersect. And I think this is the exciting period now. But I, I think we're at that period of, of evolution of science in general. Imagine, throw your mind back, if you can, from history books of of Victorian level science or pre-Victorian, where where you know steam trains or steam engines are just making an impact in the way that uh, in the way that industry works, and suddenly everything changes as a consequence. Now the cautionary note there is, of course, that society itself uh, uh, is impacted. So in a, in a rush to embrace the new technology and the industrialization there's an impact on society. So we need to be careful now, forewarned by our knowledge and, uh, of previous big changes in science and the impact on society. We can be pre-warned and we can take uh, adequate precautions that we don't disrupt society too much as a consequence. But we could be heading into a golden age of understanding how we leverage science as a consequence of these machine learning, AI-based approaches. But we used to use and throw around the terminology big data. Yeah. Um, but there's every, all data can be big. There's big data everywhere. Uh, there's, there's lots and lots of information that these machines and their algorithms will give us insights if we ask the right questions. Well, I hope we're doing that. At the 42. Moment. 42. Well, quite. Yes, indeed. Um, 
the QI is incredibly front-footed, from, certainly from my perspective, on public engagement, on food and food health-related issues. How does that benefit the work of QI going forward, having that very public engagement? Because I, I read a, a study that had been, uh, a news article that had been based on study by Imodium, the com- or the company behind Imodium, that one in three Brits is too embarrassed to talk about uh, gut health issues. Well, that's certainly true. Um, I, do, do you know, um, I, I think one of the responsibilities we have as scientists is actually we need to communicate the science we're doing in a way that society can understand. And we need to be able to pitch our dialogue with scientists at a certain level, with politicians who only have a, they might need a bite-sized piece of information for a very important parliamentary debate. So you need to be able to focus them uh, uh, to society in general, where they need a a broader, a comprehensive understanding, uh, more comprehensible understanding of what you're actually saying without the scientific lingo. So there are various stages at which we need to get the science communication right. And it is so terribly important. Otherwise, we lose contact with the people who, after all, taxpayers who are paying a lot of money to have the science that serves society. They have a right to be able to understand what we're doing. And I think this is wonderful and why we, we, I'm delighted to have Andrew here. Andrew, Andrew is a seasoned campaigner uh, he's worked in the university sector, the hospital sector, institute sector. So he understands these nuances terribly well about the way we, we need to get our points across. Wonderful. Uh, thank you. Um, Horizon. Yeah. We were hoping the UK... We were, weren't we? And that kind of seems to be sort of on the, you know, at the oh, hang on a minute phase um, of, of, of negotiation. Um, but... On the basis, the optimistic basis that the UK rejoins at some point in the near future, what will that mean for the Quadrum Institute and the NRP and, and, and a wider scientific um, body in the region? Well, you know, science is a language that transcends um, boundaries. And the same rules apply if you drop a ball from a certain height in France or in Britain, you know, it will still descend at the same rate. And science is a universal language. And I think we, there's a duty almost on us to make sure that we are doing science with our partners in a way that benefits all of us. I think that is, I, I love it when I get sound bites that I can put at the beginning of the episode to just frame. And, and that, that's, that, that's perfect. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I'll play that for my friend George. Um, He's our friend too. Yes, I know. It was a shame because I, I, I couldn't make him. Did you have any questions from Radio oh, 4 Oh, George here? couldn't make it either. Oh, um, he so, couldn't because of the, yeah, they brought in the policing forward, minister. I was, I was looking forward to having a chat with him. Um, Wow, there you go. I mean, um, but one of the, I, I sometimes like, depending on the interview, but I sometimes like to ask a question of, of slightly out of left field um, to see what kind of answer I get. With George Freeman, it was, um, which parliamentarian would you most like to be stuck in a lift with? Because having the, the, on the parliamentary state, that is not 
an unlikely occurrence because he responded with the word, with the with the, with the words um, oh a big chunk of masonry just missed the chief whip the other day um, but for you for yourself um, when's the last time you came across something food related that you just thought you know either served to you or you just w wanted to sort of get a pair of tweezers and a test tube and think I'm going to take that back into work and find out whatever oh, I need to find out about it. That happens all the time. And uh, I, I, I'm, I have to be talked out of doing that sort of thing. Wrapping these up in na napkins. Or well, and why not? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, you travel the world and you, 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 you eat things in different places of the world. It's always interesting. It's interesting to see what effect it has on you, and I mean, yes, effect it has on you. It's interesting <laughs> as well, uh, just to see culturally some of these food components, of course, have been part of the life of where um, you're visiting for for a very long time. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting. I, I'm intrigued currently by seaweed. I think that's intriguing. And yes, I, and I've been eating seaweed recently. That's... How would you rate it? Ah, uh, uh, jury's still out. Jury's still out on seaweed. Professor Ian Charles, OBE, who has got to disappear to London, I understand, later today. That's indeed the case. Thank you ever so much for your time today. I'm really grateful. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. It's it's one of the few places I, I go to Cambridge a lot, and I, I feel what I call the, the Cambridge crackle, which which because it reminds me of my time in Parliament, all these people with purposeful activities, and this is a building in Norfolk where I've actually felt that. That crackle are very much, very much be present. Well, thank you for saying that. I'm, I'm taking that in a positive way, yes, no, rather please, than please, a please, crackle please, as in please, as in masonry please, falling down around you, sort of. But thank you ever so much. No pleasure. My huge thanks to Professor Ian Charles OBE, to Andrew Stronach and especially to Dr Tammy Dugan of Cambridge University for coming along with an open mind and for seeing not only the potential of the Quadrum Institute and the Norwich Research Park, but also that we still have a job of work to do in improving the links between Cambridge and Norwich, our region's two centres of science, which are complementary, not competitors. Eastern Promise relishes the challenge and we're here to do exactly that. Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production in association with Mills and Reeve. Achieving more together.